Hey, Chief Year is coming up fast, and I'm kind of nervous. I don't know about you. I'm nervous too. <laughs> Fortunately, in the comfort of my pocket with my phone nearby, I have the OBG project that's keeping me up to date. Definitely. And really nicely is as chiefs, we now have one free year subscription to OBG First, which is where you can create your very own library online with all of their amazing articles that you can keep all in one place. And also a subscription service where they will send you daily emails with the most up-to-date recommendations and research. Want to find out how to get OBG First from the OBG Project? Head on over to CreeObserverCoffee.com and find out how you can get OBG First free for one year. Welcome back, guys. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Creogs over coffee. coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Aaron Cleary. Aaron Cleary is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University and incoming maternal fetal medicine fellow at Ohio State. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Aaron is back to talk with us again for the second part of our breastfeeding episodes. You may remember from a couple months back now, Aaron coming with us and talking to us a lot about the kind of physiology of breastfeeding, so to speak. Today is going to be a really exciting episode, Aaron, because we're going to really dive into a lot of the myths and facts about breastfeeding that I think will be really clinically useful. So Aaron, what are our objectives today? Um, our objectives today are to talk about the true contraindications of breastfeeding, um, because there's a lot of relative contraindications to breastfeeding and myths about who can and cannot breastfeed. Um, and we're also going to talk about how we counsel women about the advantages of breastfeeding for both the patient and her baby. Excellent. Looking forward to jumping right in. So Erin, I guess to start, let's talk about contraindications to breastfeeding. So there are a few true contraindications to breastfeeding, but there are many more relative contraindications um, and other medications which can impact the breast milk volume that a patient may produce. Furthermore, the breast does not equal the placenta. Um, so if you are familiar with safety uh, in medications and pregnancy, you may have to have a little bit of a switch in your mindset about what is safe in breastfeeding because they are not equal. I find it helpful to consider a few important key points on counseling a woman whether or not she should begin, interrupt, or completely stop breastfeeding. So the first thing I think about is what is the age of the infant? Nick, do you know anything about the differences in infant age and that impact on medication exposure in breastfeeding? Yeah, I think it makes some sense that premature babies in particular may have unique risks from exposure to medications or drugs and breast milk, more or less due to just immature body systems such as the immune system. Exactly. Other things that may impact it with age are just infants within the first few weeks or month of life. And this also is related to the volume of milk the infant is taking in and the concentration of any medication or substance within the milk. So Faye, how do you think about what actually gets passed into the breast milk? So part of this is molecule size. So if you have a molecule that is small, then it is 
potentially going to be able to pass into the breast milk. And this then can be at any time in a steady state between the serum and the milk. Um, and of course, as it is metabolized in mom's system, the concentration is also going to decrease in the breast milk. However, larger molecules may not be able to pass into the breast milk and so may not necessarily be a concern. Exactly. Um, I think this is one of the key points that I learned about that really was mind-blowing that, you know, the breasts are not like the bladder. It's not like things collect in the breast milk um, over time and stay there, but rather the steady state between the blood and the breast milk such that as things are metabolized in mom's system, the concentration will go down in the milk. And this can be really helpful when counseling our patients about timing of ingestion of different things and the potential exposure to the infant. Other things I think about um, is the expected duration of any medication. So is this going to be a one-time necessary, you know, administration of a drug, or is this something that the patient is going to need to, you know, have prescribed for weeks or months at a time? Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, Nick, talk a little bit about whether or not medications are absorbed by the infant's GI tract. Yeah, so kind of like what we alluded to earlier, some substances may ultimately be less bioavailable to the infant, really because of a second pass effect in the infant. Just like we consider medications in adults and we think about first pass metabolism, now you've got a second pass metabolism as it goes through the infant's GI tract, which is again a, an interesting point that you have like these multiple filters, so to speak. Great. So now that we've set the stage, Faye, can you give me an example of something that is a true contraindication of breastfeeding? So in terms of from the baby side, a true contraindication would be galactosemia. So this is when there is a deficiency of galactose-1-phosphate uretal transferase, which prevents the metabolism of galactose. And so this is a true contraindication. And as we know, screening of galactosemia takes place at birth, along with other things like PKU and other metabolic disorders. Definitely. And then there are a few things from the maternal side where breastfeeding is absolutely contraindicated. Um, Nick, can you tell me one or two? Yeah. So I can think of two off the bat. One would be in an HIV positive patient, um, though particularly in developed countries, the guidance is different. And then the other virus that we consider for true contraindications to breastfeeding would be human T-cell um, lymphoma virus type 1. Human T-cell lymphoma virus is endemic in parts of Japan, the Caribbean, South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and is associated, as the name implies, with T-cell leukemias and lymphomas um, that are chronic conditions with progressive neuropathy. Um, and so, again, in HIV and HTLV, those would be the things that we'd say absolute contraindications. Exactly. And that's really kind of where the list stops. Um, everything else we're going to talk about um, is more under the category of relative contraindications. So, Faye, what are some other viral issues or infectious disease things we think about with mom? And um, after diagnosis, when can she resume breastfeeding? Yeah, so um, I think we can divide these into one, the hepatitides, as well as chickenpox, TB, and influenza. So if a mom has hep A, she should not breastfeed until she receives gamma globulin. If she has hep B, she should not breastfeed until the infant receives the immunoglobulin as well as the first dose of the hep B vaccine prior to discharge. And if mom has hep C, she should not breastfeed if a co-infection exists, such as HIV. 
Similarly, in terms of chickenpox, the mother should not breastfeed while she is infectious. If she has TB, then she should receive two weeks of treatment at least before breastfeeding. And then finally, if a mother has influenza, um, if she's been afebrile without antipyretics for more than 24 hours and the mother's able to control her secretions and her cough, then she's totally able to breastfeed. And Tamiflu or Osatomavir is poorly excreted in the breast milk. Great. I really think um, when I'm considering all of these different infections that the conversation, like it always should, comes back to a patient-centered decision-making and really getting at the heart of what our patient's goals are with breastfeeding or how she plans to feed her infant. Um, for some people, you know, two weeks of treatment with active TB is going to be too long and she may decide to discontinue breastfeeding. Other patients, depending on, you know, when in uh, the postpartum course this diagnosis is made um, or how old their infant is may decide to pump and dump and supplement with formula or donor milk or stored breast milk during that time and then resume breastfeeding. Um, So it really is a nuanced discussion about what our patient's goals are and being realistic and honest about when breastfeeding could be resumed. Nick, what are some other uh, scenarios where we would counsel patients about providing breast milk to the infant? Yeah, I'm curious, Erin, actually about your thoughts or knowledge about kind of two scenarios, I guess. One being patients who are using IV or other drugs, and then probably more commonly in our practice, the use of marijuana in patients who are breastfeeding. Now, we get a lot of sort of questions or commentary back and forth with our pediatricians here about marijuana use in pregnancy and ultimately with breastfeeding. Um, And I think there's a lot of, if you look out online or look for things in the literature, there can be some mixed messages. What's what should we take away? Yeah. So with IV drug use, that may be kind of a temporary or one-time event that a patient, you know, chooses to use, or it may be something that's ongoing. So again, it goes back to individualizing that counseling, but if there's any active IV drug use going on, um, we would recommend against providing breast milk to the infant. And it's, number one, a safety matter as far as what exposure is going to be in the milk, Um, but we also think about what state of alertness and ability to care for an infant when it comes to sitting down and and nursing directly or breastfeeding when people may be under the influence. Marijuana is a mixed bag and hot topic, especially as uh, across the country, new laws are being passed that make it more available, whether medicinally or for recreational use. What do we know? We know that THC, or the main compound in marijuana, is present in human milk up to eight times that of the maternal plasma levels. So this is one thing that does get concentrated in breast milk, unlike many other compounds and substances. We know that THC metabolites are found in infant uh, feces or stools, um, and so we know that it is absorbed and metabolized by the infant. Several preclinical studies highlight that even low to moderate doses during particular periods of brain development for the infant can have profound consequences for brain maturation potentially leading to long-lasting alterations in cognitive function and emotional behavior. And so, you know, when we encounter a patient who is pregnant or breastfeeding, we definitely want to counsel them on reducing or eliminating their use of marijuana to avoid exposing their infant to the substance and kind of educate them on the possible long-term neurobehavioral effects from continued use. Excellent. That was really nice, Erin. Thank you for that. I guess kind of moving on from here, so we've talked about 
absolute and relative contraindications. I want to move on now to talk a bit more about common myths that exist about breastfeeding. So what do you guys know about breastfeeding and mastitis? It's a definite common complication in breastfeeding patients. So what do we do about actually giving the baby the milk in that scenario? So Erin, in this case, you should breastfeed because emptying the breast actually prevents stasis of milk. Exactly. And there are multiple antibiotic options that are compatible with uh, breastfeeding. So dicloxacillin um, is usually first line, and that is definitely safe with breastfeeding. What about some other infections? Nick, you talked about a few before. It sounds like with a lot of common infections, you really can continue to breastfeed. Again, knowing antibiotic choice is one thing, but with respiratory, urinary, GU infections, continuing breastfeeding is generally acceptable. Definitely. And it really just comes back to common sense, you know, washing your hands, covering your cough, those sorts of things. Let's talk about imaging. This is an area that I think a lot of patients get bad advice, and we have a great opportunity to advocate on behalf of our patients on whether or not they need to pump and dump or can continue to breastfeed their infants. So, Faye, take it away. Yeah, so almost all types of imaging are okay with breastfeeding. So x-rays are okay, CT and MRIs with or without contrasts are okay, x-rays with contrasts, with imaging or with radioactive material also okay. Mammograms may be harder to interpret when someone is lactating, but um, they should still be done if you are concerned about that patient and you do want to take an image of the breast. The only exception is thyroid scan using iodine 131 because we do know that this substance concentrates in the breast milk and um, at high levels, it can suppress the baby's thyroid function or even destroy the thyroid. So um, breastfeeding should be discontinued until the levels of the substance in the breast milk is safe. So this usually depends on the dose, but can range from eight days to over 100 days as the half-life of the substance is eight days. Exactly. If the iodine-131 is used, um, you can actually take breast milk samples and test them for the gamma radiation counter before breastfeeding is resumed to ensure that the radiation in the milk has returned to safe levels. Nick, what if you have a patient who's breastfeeding and find out, uh, finds out that she's pregnant? Yeah, surprisingly, something I didn't know or think about, but they can continue to breastfeed. One of the challenges is certainly that with the significantly increased progesterone levels in pregnancy, that will pose a challenge ultimately to milk supply and also cause some breast and nipple sensitivity. That mature milk also in counseling patients will ultimately be replaced by colostrum in the second trimester, and so patients should be counseled about kind of just change in the milk as well. And then there are folks that do tandem feeding of both a toddler and a newborn. Um, so I, that's juggling a lot of kids, but also is like something, again, that I didn't really know. Tandem feeding has definite pros and cons, and every patient's going to have to kind of decide that for herself. It may have something to do with the age of the toddler and that um, age gap between the toddler and the infant. Um, but a lot of patients have a shorter duration of breast pain, breast engorgement, those sorts of things after delivery when they're tandem feeding because the toddler is able to resolve some of that um, faster than the infant would be able to. All right. So one topic that, again, drives me absolutely crazy and is a great opportunity for us to advocate for our patients. What about if I have a uh, patient who's breastfeeding and needed general anesthesia? When can she breastfeed? So having general anesthesia is not a contraindication to breastfeeding. So basically, as soon as the patient is awake and is able to hold the baby, then the medication in the general anesthesia has been metabolized and therefore breastfeeding is safe. 
Yes. So once you're awake and pack you, you can breastfeed. This is an area, again, where we should advocate for our patients to have access to a pump or access to their baby as close to, you know, the procedure uh, ahead of time and then opportunity to pump um, afterwards as well. But we tell them they don't have to discard that milk. You can save it and take it home to your baby or bring the baby to the patient um, as soon as possible afterwards to nurse directly. What about patients who are on maintenance of medications like methadone or buprenorphine? You can still breastfeed, which is really neat. And actually, there's a reduction in severity and duration of treatment of neonatal abstinence syndrome in mothers who are on these medications while breastfeeding, which is also pretty remarkable. Yeah. And this is, again, a hot topic with more and more patients who have opiate you know, substance use disorder. And so these patients are not going away. And our ability to advocate and encourage breastfeeding and all the other benefits of breastfeeding, which we'll get to, and the fact that, yeah, they may have a shorter hospitalization and duration of NAS if they breastfeed. So your patient has abstain from alcohol the whole pregnancy because she's, you know, listened to your advice, when can she have a drink? So after you have your baby and if you're breastfeeding, you can absolutely have an occasional alcoholic beverage. So alcohol concentration in the blood is, again, in a steady state with the milk. So you know, if you are actively in the process of having a beer or a glass of wine, then probably not the best time to be pumping or nursing. But if you delay your nursing or pumping until more of that alcohol is metabolized, um, that can limit the baby from exposure. So basically the rule to follow is that if you're tipsy, then your baby will also likely be tipsy. Yeah. Something I tell patients and friends, you know, if you're uncomfortable with that milk, you can always dilute it with other milk um, that you have pumped and collected when you have not been um, drinking alcohol. It's important to let patients know too, though, that alcohol may have an impact on oxytocin release. And so you may actually notice a slight dip in um, supply if you're drinking heavily. Um, But an occasional, you know, glass of wine or beer um, really should have no impact on a long-term supply. Lastly, you know, for our patients who are separated from their baby or if direct breastfeeding is interrupted, what should we tell them about, you know, what should they do about pumping or handling um, their milk supply at that time? Yeah, so again, as you alluded to, if for some reason there's separation between mom and child or direct breastfeeding gets interrupted, mom should continue to have some way to regularly express their milk if they desire to continue breastfeeding. Again, continued expression of the milk allows for continued supply to build the milk, and storage allows the infant to continue to receiving milk. The problem with stasis, ultimately, as we talked about earlier, is that it can cause or worsen mastitis. And so that's, that's the thing that we want to avoid here. Exactly. And there's some patients who, you know, if they're separated, whether they're visiting us in the emergency room for evaluation of something else or any number of things, may go many hours, like a whole day, without either pumping or nursing. And that abrupt cessation definitely is a setup for plugged ducts and potentially mastitis or abscess uh, formation. I think we should move on to counseling our patients about the advantages of breastfeeding for them and their babies. As OBGYNs, we are constantly providing our medical advice to our patients, and on the topic of breastfeeding, we are uniquely positioned to have a very long-lasting impact on the health of both our patient and her child. What do you guys know about, you know, lactation and, and how it plays into the reproductive cycle? So lactation is actually the natural continuation of the reproductive cycle following gestation and parturition. So we should be knowledgeable about this entire reproductive cycle. 
And so from what, from what studies have shown in terms of the mom, the act and the duration of breastfeeding has positive long-term health consequences, including things like protection from breast cancer, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Nick, tell me a little bit more about the cardiovascular disease in particular. Yeah. So we'll hearken back to another one of our previous episodes on hormone replacement therapy and remember back to the Women's Health Initiative, um, which just as a reminder for our listeners was a study of over 139,000 women more than 63 years of age and looked at a number of different things in this cohort. But one of the things that they did pay attention to was looking at, again, these women older than 63 who had had one live birth and concluded that the duration of lactation was associated with a lower prevalence of hypertension, diabetes, dyslipidemia, and cardiovascular disease, most significant in women who reported 12 or more months of lactation in their lifetime. Another study of over 1,200 women demonstrated additional risk reduction of type 2 diabetes uh, for every additional six months of breastfeeding. What else do you know, Faye? So it can also decrease the risk of osteoporosis. So as we know, um, women are at higher risk of osteoporosis than men after they reach the menopause. And we, actually, the risk of osteoporosis for women is greatest if they have never born an infant. It's a little bit less if they have born an infant. Um, and it is much less for those who have born a child and breastfed their child. Yep. Furthermore, there's a decreased risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Um, so breastfeeding for more than 12 cumulative months was associated with a reduced risk in both breast and ovarian cancers compared to patients who had never breastfed. So there definitely is mounting evidence as more and more research is done on the long-term health effects for our patients. And then we're also thinking about, you know, nutrition and the long-term benefits for babies. So Nick, tell me a little bit about... Um, why is breast milk good for, you know, human milk for human babies? Yeah, so kind of alluding to that, there's this concept of species specificity, right? So species specificity basically is a concept that states that the benefits of human milk are there because breast milk is the optimal nutrition for human babies. Human breast milk is specific for the needs of human infants, just like for other mammalian species, their milk is specific for the young of those particular species as well. So for optimal growth of the brain and body um, in this very fragile time period of human development, as well as protection against particular types of infection and developing appropriate human immunity, human milk is basically designed to fit all of those needs. Yeah. Another area that ties in with breastfeeding is as more and more research is done and we learn more about the gut function, um, we actually learned that there are specific um, sugars and oligosaccharides that actually feed the flora of the infant gut. And so you have differences in infants who either have exposure or don't with breastfeeding. What about uh, infections for the infant and those who are breastfed? For breastfed babies, they have a lower incidence of multiple types of infections. So this includes a 50% reduction in otitis media, a 64% decrease in GI infections, and a 72% decrease in lower respiratory tract infections, which is awesome. 
Yeah. Babies and infants have a lower incidence of asthma later in life, and breastfeeding also has a 36% reduction in SIDS. Also reduces long-term risk for obesity, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. So there was a study, a meta-analysis involving 15 studies and 17,000 patients that revealed a small reduction in diastolic blood pressure was associated with breastfeeding, um, and we know that this confers long-term benefits on cardiovascular health. Um, finally, childhood cancers like AML are reduced uh, with breastfeeding. Sounds like a lot of great arguments in favor of breastfeeding. Thank you, Erin, for taking us through all of this useful, useful information. Faye, why don't we try and summarize as best we can? All right. So first of all, we talked about some of the contraindications of breastfeeding and things to think about um, when we are thinking of what is going into the breast milk and what is going into the infant. So things to consider would be the age of the infant. So an especially premature baby may have unique risks, the concentration of the substance in the milk, the expected duration or how long the mother will be exposed to the substance, and whether or not that substance is actually absorbed and metabolized by the baby. We then moved on to true contraindications to breastfeeding, and there are only a handful. Infant contraindications include galactosemia, and from the maternal sides, there are only two significant true contraindications, an HIV-positive patient in a developed country and in a patient who has human T-cell lymphoma virus type 1. There are multiple relative contraindications, and we can kind of divide these up into infectious and other. So in terms of infection, there are the hepatitides until the mother essentially has been treated with a gamma globulin or immunoglobulin. Um, also things like chickenpox if the mother is infectious, active TB until the mother has been treated for two weeks, and influenza until the mother is afebrile without antipyretics for more than 24 hours and is able to control her secretions. We did spend a little bit of time as well in the other category, mostly speaking about IV drug use and marijuana. Again, there's a lot of shared decision-making that's involved here, um, but should be known to patients that there are deleterious effects on the infant from continuing to consume mind-altering substances. We then talked about some myths that we should dispel. So those things include the fact that, yes, you can breastfeed if you have mastitis and other types of infections, such as a cold, urinary tract infections, and things like that. And you can also breastfeed with most types of medical imaging with or without contrast, with the exception of thyroid scans using iodine-131. You can also breastfeed if you're pregnant, if you had general anesthesia, if you're on maintenance opiate medications such as methadone or buprenorphine, and if you have an occasional alcoholic beverage. Mothers who are separated from their babies for any reason should be encouraged and supported to regularly express and store milk. We then moved on from here to talk about the advantages of breastfeeding. We talked about how lactation is the natural continuation of the reproductive cycle, and so obstetricians and gynecologists are really in prime position to take on lactation. We know that for maternal benefits, there's a decreased risk of cardiovascular disease, decreased risk of osteoporosis, decreased risk of breast and ovarian cancers among some of the big benefits. In terms of the baby, we know that there is a species specificity for breast milk, meaning that human breast milk is specific for the needs of human infants. Breastfeeding infants have lower incidences of many different types of infections. They also have a lower incidence of asthma, SIDS, and also later reduced risks of obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and childhood cancers like AML. Any last words, Erin? Well, like I always say, it's important to stay abreast of the current research on the benefits of breastfeeding. 
Thank you. Once again, I'm Nick. I'm Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and go on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify and give us a five-star rating and review. Catch us online on social media, Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, now on Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, and Patreon where you can get a shout out on the show or some cool swag, www.patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. You can also visit our website at www.creogsovercoffee.com for some adjunct materials to help your learning. Have some love for Aaron, have a correction or shout out to one of our previous shows, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.